Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't know what we would do without you. You're the peace in the midst of the storm. You're the calm in the midst of the chaos. There's no one like you. And you sit high and above, and yet you're right here with us. You give us a peace that passes all understanding. We feel your presence. And we know that everything is going to be okay because you're still in control. And so, Lord, any anxiety that we might have, any stress that we might be living with, Lord, I pray that we would lay that down upon you and that you would take it and you would remove it and you would once again show yourself to be who you are and that our faith would get stronger because we realize that you are God Almighty, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and you are worthy of all of our praise. Turn, Lord, our fear into courage, our discouragement into encouragement. Lord, the griping, turn it into being thankful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. I'm so glad that you are with us today, and I also want to welcome everybody who's watching from at home or on the stream. We're so glad that you've taken the time to join us as well. We're in the middle of a series called Troublemaker. We've been going through the life of Jesus, and today we're going to talk about the teaching of Jesus. I thought it would be kind of fun to play a little game. You can play along at home if you like, but in the room, I want you to kind of shout out what the answers are. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line or a quote, and you tell me who said it. Fair enough? And just to feel free just to shout it out. It's okay to be wrong, okay? So here we go. We'll start off. This is the first quote. Never going to give you up, never going to let you down. Who said that? Okay, if you said Rick Astley, you are correct, and you've just been Rick-rolled, okay? Just want you to know that. Never going to give you up, never going to let... You're going to be singing that all night. It's going to be good right there, I tell you what. All right, I got another one for you. Ready? This is easy. Let it go. Whoa, we got some Disney fans over here that are very aggressive. Elsa is correct. That's right. Let it go, let it go. That's got some biblical truth to it, doesn't it? How about this amazing quote? I said to myself, I said, self, I said, yeah. <laughs> Out of all the pictures we could have chose... We choose when I have on a dress shirt and a tie, and the triple chin has come out in full effect. Thank you, creative team, for that one. I really appreciate that an awful lot. All right, let me give you another one so we can get past that picture, okay? How about this one? Cowabunga, dude. Whoa, Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. That was impressive right there. All right, let's go back in history a little bit, all right? These might be a little more difficult. You ready? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Who said that? JFK, John F. Kennedy. That's correct. All right, let me give you the next one. You ready? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers... Let me finish the quote, would you? <laughs> Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Who said it? 
Abraham Lincoln. That is such a great quote. Okay, let me give you another one. Who said, I have a dream? You know, the next service I do this with him, I say, let me finish the quote first. <laughs> I'm impressed with you, though. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Let it be, let it be. Yes. Okay. This one's a short quote, so I'll try to read it as fast as I can. Here it is. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Very good. Ronald Reagan said that. Now, that's impressive. Many of you knew every single one of the answers, and some of you didn't have a clue, you know, because you flunked history class along the way, didn't you? These were great orators, weren't they? Uh, but the greatest orator of all is obviously Jesus. Jesus' words have been read more, studied more, talked about more, loved more, quoted more, believed more, and translated more than anybody else in the history of all of mankind. Jesus was the master teacher. So when I feel like I, God's calling me into the ministry and I start to teach the Word of God, I want to do it like Jesus did it. I mean, I'm just going to pale in comparison, but I, I want to be as effective as I possibly can be. So if you want to learn to be a great communicator, here's what you need to do. You need to stand in front of a bunch of mid-school kids. Because if you can survive that, you can survive anything. Do you understand? And the attention span of a middle schooler isn't very long at all. So you have to be very creative in how you present the message of Jesus to those kids. Because you can lose them really, really quickly. I remember one time, it was right before the service was going to begin, it was on a Sunday morning, and we were cranking up the music at this particular church a little louder than we normally did. There were other classes across the way, and my boss walked in and yelled at me and told me to turn it down. Well, I ignored him as if he wasn't there, and I continued to let the music be loud. Well, he got louder than the music. He began to shout back at me, and he began to scream at me. Of course, all the kids were milling around waiting for the service to begin, and they're watching this drama unfold between myself and between my boss. And so all of a sudden, I just kept ignoring him. He got madder and madder and madder, and more kids were stopping their conversations, kind of watching what was going on. And that's when my boss walked over to where the plug was and pulled it out, and the music just stopped. And when the music stopped, it was just dead silent in the room. Everybody was watching us. And that's when my boss, in a very stern tone, said, Todd, I want to see you in my office as soon as this service is over. And then he walked out. And I thought, oh, boy, we're in trouble now. And I remember walking over to a dead microphone, and I said to the kids, I said, go to small groups. We'll go back for a large group time in a little bit. So all the kids just stunned going to small groups. And they sit down, and the passage of Scripture on that particular day was how many times should you forgive somebody? Should you forgive somebody, you know, up to seven times? And Jesus said, no, you don't forgive somebody up to seven times. You forgive somebody 70 times seven, or an innumerable amount of times. Well, they got done with their small group, and while they were doing their small group, they were saying things like this, Todd needs to know this. Todd needs to ask for forgiveness, and his boss needs to forgive him. They need to do what Jesus did. I mean, they were on the edge of their seat for every word that they were talking about in small group. 
What was hilarious, though, was they came out of small group back into large group, and I was standing there next to my boss, and both of us had a big smile on our face because the whole fight was set up to get them ready for their small group time. See, that's a master teacher right there. I tell you what. Let me give you another one. We were about 15 minutes into the service, and we were singing some songs, and this kid came in, and he was known for kind of having a, a, a rough background. He'd given his life to Christ recently, but he's just known for kind of being a kid who, was, who partied a lot. And so he came in, and he was drunk, or he appeared to be drunk. And he was falling over some chairs, and he was being really loud and really disrespectful. About 15 minutes into the service, uh, the police came. And they arrested him for disorderly conduct right there in the middle of our time together with the students. And then the kids all watched as he was arrested and he was taken out of the room and, and taken, taken away. Fifteen more minutes goes by after some more things that we did in that particular service. And then I got up and I said, today we're going to talk about the dangers of alcohol. I had him eaten out of my hands. And it was all set up. The kid, the kid wasn't drunk. Well, I wanted to be like Jesus. I, I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to be able to give a, a, a memories to people where they would hear the word of God and remember the word of God. I mean, think about what they did when Jesus would teach. People would come from miles around. And not just a few people. Thousands and thousands of people would come. And they would stand outside all day long in the hot, blazing sun. And they would go without food just to hear a word from Jesus as he talked about the kingdom of God. So we're going to talk about the teachings of Jesus today. Because once he gathers his disciples, he begins to go from one town to another town proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come and that everyone should repent. Now we're very fortunate, I don't know if you know this or not, to have one of Jesus' sermons. I don't know if it's the total of his sermon, but this is what the disciples gave us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's the longest portion of, of, of a sermon that we have from Jesus, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason we call it the Sermon on the Mount was because Jesus gave this message on the side of a mountain talking to thousands and thousands of people. Now, i got to warn you, when you look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, there are some things that Jesus says that just don't make a whole lot of sense at first glance. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you will see how genius his words really are. Now, we're going to look at a section of Scripture called the Beatitudes. That means blessed. That means happy. Jesus is going to give us the secret formula to living a life of meaning and a life of purpose. Let's look at it together. Jesus starts off and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Blessed are you when you're poor. I've never seen anybody celebrate over the fact that they're poor. I've never seen anybody run out in the street going, we're poor, we're poor, yay us. That just doesn't happen. What's, what is he talking about here? Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is what it means. Blessed are you when you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt before a holy God. Blessed are you when you come to your senses and realize you have zero, absolutely nothing to offer a holy God. Blessed are you when you realize that your sin has separated you from God. And that you need a savior to die and pay the price for your sin. Blessed are you. When you realize that Jesus is the Son of God who died on a cross and rose again from the dead so he could have a relationship with you. 
Friends, people are going to hell almost every day. You know that, right? And do you know the number one reason why people are going to hell? Because they think they're good. Somehow along the way, there has been this misnomer where if you're a good person, then you get to go to heaven. And if you're a bad person, then you get to go to hell. And have you ever noticed just about everybody dies and everybody says they're good. So in the end, everybody goes to heaven, right? Blessed are you when you realize you're not good. That there's nothing good that lives within you. Blessed are you when you realize that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Blessed are you when you realize that there'll be a day that you'll stand before God Almighty. And you'll be in the presence of His holiness. Blessed are you when you understand that your goodness will pale in comparison to His goodness. Blessed are you that you realize that before that moment in time comes. Because if you wait to figure that out, if you still think your goodness somehow is going to get you to heaven, you're going to be disappointed when you find out you weren't good enough to get in. You want to know what you got to be to get to heaven? you got to be perfect. You perfect because that's the standard. God is perfect. And if you're not perfect, you've sinned. And someone has to pay the price for your sin. And you can pay for it yourself and be eternally separated from God. Or you can accept the gift that Jesus gave to you by dying on the cross and rising again so that you might be made right with God. Blessed are you when you realize you got nothing. You got nothing. And that he's everything that you need. And when that happens, the second thing happens. This is kind of a progression. It kind of stair steps up. Then it says this. Blessed are those who mourn for they'll be comforted. That doesn't make any sense at first glance, does it? Blessed are you when you're sad. Blessed are you when you're crying so much that your snot's coming out your nose and you can't catch your breath. That sounds really good. You'll be comforted. Oh, that's wonderful. That's not what this is talking about. Blessed are you when you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt and it causes you to mourn and weep over your sin condition. When you finally realize, oh my goodness. When you finally realize the depths of your sin and the harm that you've done to yourself and to others and to God, it should cause you to mourn. It should cause you to weep. It should cause you to wail. It should cause you to grieve over what you've done and over what you've become. Blessed are you when you repent of your sin, when the mourning and the godly sorrow leads you to repentance. Blessed are you when you say to the Lord, I can't fix myself. I need you to fix me. And then when you do that, when you are honest about your sin condition and you mourn over your sin condition, then Jesus says this, blessed are the meek for they'll inherit the earth. And what's the word meekness mean? It means strength under control. Here's what it means. Blessed are you when you make Jesus the leader of your life. Blessed are you when you no longer try to rule your own life and call your own shots. Blessed are you when Jesus is the Lord. He's the boss. He's the ruler. He leads, you follow. He says go, you go. He says do, you do. Strength under control. Blessed are you. You'll inherit the earth. Then it says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be filled. Well, what happens? You've confessed your sin. You've repented of your sin. You want Jesus to be the leader of your life. Well, guess what's going to happen next to you? You're going to want more of him. 
You're going to want to get as close to him as you possibly can. Blessed are you when you hunger to be as close to God, when you want to walk with God and talk with God and do life together with God. When you have that kind of, that kind of focus, oh my goodness, you'll start living this full and meaningful life. And then he says this, blessed are the merciful, so they'll be shown mercy. Happy are those who help other people along the way. Happy are those when you see a need and then you meet a need and you become the hands and feet of Jesus. And and then he says this, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Happy are those people whose lives match up their words. Happy are you when there is no disconnect from what you say you are to what you actually are. And just about every one of us has lived that kind of life at some point in time. And we were miserable while we lived it that way. How about this one? Blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the children of God. Happy are you when you accept the forgiveness of God and you pass it on to other people. When you have no bitterness and no anger and no no resentment towards somebody else. When you forgive in the same way that you've been forgiven. Isn't that something? And then the craziest words of all. You ready for this? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted? Doesn't make any sense. This is what it means. Blessed are you when you get to the point in your life where what anybody else does to you doesn't matter because you're living your life for an audience of one. So it doesn't matter what they say to you. It doesn't matter what they do to you. It doesn't matter what you lose because you've gained everything because Jesus is the treasure. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 are some of the most quoted verses in all the Bible. See if you recognize any of these. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. No one can serve two masters. Either hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. How about this one? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Jesus' words are quoted more than anybody else. And Jesus' words have changed the lives of more people than anybody else. My life has been changed by his words. Your life possibly has been changed by his words as well. Jesus was the greatest teacher of all time. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus, one of the primary ways in which he taught was through the use of stories. He usually taught in parables. Now, some of you have been around a while, you know a good definition of a parable. Some of you don't. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And so the question is, is why did Jesus tell so many stories? Because one-third of Jesus' teaching were stories. I, I get a bum rap from time to time. That guy just tells too many stories. Well, I'm just trying to be like Jesus, okay? That's all I'm trying to do. And, and so Jesus told all these stories. And there were stories about farmers. They were stories about sheep. And so the question we got to ask ourselves is, why did Jesus do that? Because he could have blown us away with, with big words and theolo- theological definitions of, of mysteries of the universe. I mean, he could have just blown us away. Why is he talking about a shepherd who loses a sheep? 
Why is he talking about a woman who lost a coin? I mean, that's some basic stuff right there. Why doesn't he talk the deeper truths of the the complexities of the universe, how we are made and how we're to relate rightly with God? Why why did he tell stories? He was trying to speak in the language of the everyday person. He wanted to make certain that everybody could understand what was going on and what was being said. And so he used a lot of stories about farmers. He used a lot of stories about sheep herders. Why? Because those were the two main occupations that were there in the first century. So he taught in, in the language of the people so that everyone would understand. And his parables talked about heaven. His parables talked about hell. They talked about the kingdom of God. They talked about the fact that Jesus was going to die and that he was going to rise again from the dead. Story after story after story. Of course, the most famous story probably that Jesus ever spoke is the parable of the prodigal son. You're probably familiar with this one, right? There was a young kid, and he goes to his dad one day, and he says, Dad, you're better off dead to me than you are alive. I want my share of the inheritance, and I want it right now. And for reasons I don't fully understand, the dad gave the kid the money. And what's the kid do? He goes off and squanders it in a foreign, distant land. The money dries up, and guess what? The land dries up, too. There's a famine in the land, so he's got to get a job because he's flat broke. And all those friends he had, well, they've already abandoned him. They've left him to fend for himself. So he gets a job slopping pigs. What's Jesus trying to say in this story? He's trying to say this kid's hit rock bottom. Because no self-respecting Jewish kid would ever spend any time with pigs because pigs were unclean animals. The Bible says that Jesus told him the story. He said that the man looked at the slop of the pigs and thought to himself, boy, I'd like to have that in my own belly. And then the Bible has this little phrase that Jesus said, but then he came to his senses. He came to his senses. And he said to himself, my father's hired men are treated better than I am. I know I've blown it as far as being a son, but maybe I can go back home. Maybe my dad will welcome me back as one of his hired men, and I won't be starving out here anymore. So he prepares a little speech, doesn't he? Father, I've sinned against heaven and against earth. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he practices speech all the way back home. Now, what he doesn't know is that his dad's been watching for him over the horizon, praying for him, looking for him. And when he sees the silhouette of his son come over the hillside... The father can't contain himself. He does something that no self-respecting Jewish man would ever do. He runs in public. But he doesn't care what anybody else says. doesn't care what anybody else thinks. And that boy doesn't even get a speech out, does he? Father grabs a hold of him. He hugs him. He kisses him. He gives him a robe, puts a ring on his finger. He says, kill the fatted calf. We're having a party tonight. My son was lost, but now he's found. He, he was blind, but now he's, he's alive. He was dead, but now he's alive. Come and rejoice with me. And you think that's going to be the end of the story? But it's not, is it? They go inside. They're having a party. Well, the older brother, who was a little disgusted with what the younger brother had done, comes from working in the fields. And he says, what in the world's going on? And then one of the guys says, well, your brother came back, and they're throwing a party for him, and he's disgusted by it. you got to be kidding me right now. My dad killed the fatted calf for that loser. Gone out there, spent all of his money on wine, women, and song, and you and I both know he didn't sing that much. And the father comes out of the party, reaches out to his son, says, come on in. And the son says, I don't want anything to do with that. Now, most of Jesus' stories, to be honest with you, weren't what we call politically correct stories. 
he was a troublemaker, right? There were two groups of people listening to that day to the parable of the prodigal son. One was the sinner, the tax collector, the prostitute. They were kicking rocks as Jesus talked. They couldn't even look up. Because they were certain that they were so far gone and so messed up that there was no way they could ever be forgiven of their sin. That God could care less about them because they had heard that over and over again from the Pharisees and from the Sadducees. Now, who do you think they related to the most in the story of the parable of the prodigal son? I think it was the younger brother. Because just like the younger brother, they had squandered everything, hadn't they? They had left, they had blown it all. And they had great regret. But to hear a story, oh my goodness, where the father would run and embrace this rebellious child, where he would welcome him back back home, not as a servant, but as his own son. Oh my goodness. All of a sudden, the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes thought to themselves, maybe there's hope for me. Maybe I'm not too far gone. Maybe God still cares about me. But there was another group of people that were there that day. And that was the Pharisees. The arrogant ones, the religious leaders of the day. Who do you think they related to in the story? The older brother. And I imagine them looking at Jesus thinking, who in the world do you think you are? And Jesus looked back at them and said, who in the world do you think you are? You're supposed to exemplify the love and grace and mercy of God. And all you do is heap on rules and regulations and restrictions. And you let everybody know that they don't measure up and that they never will. You leave them in worse shape than the way that you found them. Parable after parable after parable. And I think every parable that Jesus spoke, he spoke it with me on his mind. Listen to the words of this song. And then I'm going to come back and we're going to talk about the most difficult teaching that Jesus ever gave. read the words in red How you leave the 99 To find the one missing feels like that was written with me on your mind And the prodigal son who ran Leaving his home behind Father came running to meet him. Did you say that with me on your mind? Who am I that the king of the world would give one single thought about my broken heart? Who am I that the God of all grace wipes the tears from my face and says, Come as you are? You paid the price. Just knowing you call me your child It's flooding my soul with unspeakable hope Thank you, Lord, that it's me on your
So you didn't leave, so let's talk about the most difficult teaching uh, that Jesus ever gave. Are you ready? Uh, This is found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 through 26. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? So in this passage of scripture, Jesus wants us to be very clear on what it takes to be one of his disciples, what it takes to actually follow him. I read a story this past week about a pastor. He was in Africa, and he was meeting with a missionary who was there, and he had the opportunity to speak to a couple of dozen uh, tribesmen. And he explained how Jesus had died for our sins and had risen again from the dead. And two of the 24 tribesmen gave their lives over to Jesus Christ. Well, they were excited about that. So the next day, the pastor is hanging out at the missionary's house when the two men who had given their life to Jesus Christ came by. And both of them had a big duffel bag on their back. And the pastor was confused. And so he turned to the missionary and he said, what is this about? And the missionary said, well, they have all their possessions with them. They're moving on. And the pastor said, well, why are they moving on? He said, well, they've been ostracized. They're no longer welcomed in their village because they gave their life to Jesus and they've been kicked out of their families. And the pastor was concerned for the well-being of these two young men. And and, and he said, this might be more than they can bear, might be more than they can handle. And this is what the missionary said. He said, they knew that when they made the decision. They knew that when they made the decision to follow after Jesus. See, what does it mean to deny yourself? It means to give up your selfish ambition. 
It means that you make him preeminent. It's no longer about you. It's no longer about your kingdom. It's no longer about making your name great. It's about lifting up the kingdom of God, leveraging your life, your time, your talent, your resources for something bigger than yourself. And you know what's a shame is that most people who profess faith in Christ have never lived that way. Isn't that something? Very few people sit down and say, how can I give more time? How can I give more resources? How can I build up the kingdom of God? How can I leave a legacy behind that's not about me, but something that will far outlast me? And take up your cross? Oh, my goodness, when Jesus said that to the people of the first century, oh, that sent shockwaves to the crowd. You want to be one of my disciples? Hey, first off, deny yourself. Then secondly, you take up your cross. They knew what that meant. Be willing to die. You think Jesus was the only one who got crucified? That's not true. Thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people were crucified in the first century. My goodness, the rebellions would get so heated up. Josephus, who's the historian of that time period, says they ran out of wood. All of a sudden, there would be a great rebellion. Thousands of people would rebel against Rome because they wanted them out of their country. So what did Rome do? They squashed them like a bug. They put them on crosses. They put them up and down streets for miles at a time, six feet separating each cross. They put up so many people on crosses up and down streets when there was a rebellion going on. They ran out of wood. Scholars say it may be on one of these occasions when Jesus is staying next to a cross that's been used in the past. He says, hey, you want to be my disciple? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And they knew what it meant. You die. You die to your dreams and your hopes and your future. And you take on his dreams and his hopes and his future for your life. Less of me, more of him. And you do this on a daily basis. And why? Because you love him. Because he means more to you than anybody else or anything else. And sacrifice is the language of love, isn't it? It's, it's always been amazing to me. But we'll, we'll shake our head on a, on a sermon about serving, you know. We'll agree with everything the preacher says. Oh, he's right about that. I'll take up the towel, be a difference maker, yeah. But then when we ask you to serve, 20% of you do. And 80% say, you know, let's find somebody else to do that. Anybody else want to do that? Because I'm not doing that. I tell you what, I'm too busy. And it's your church. And it's your kids that are going to be blessed. It's your teenager. It's someone who's new to the Lord. <laughs> not our head. Oh, yeah, that's right, preacher. We'll drop a few bucks. Oh, my gosh. Got a 20? Let's drop a 20 in the collection box. Don't expect me to tithe. Don't expect me to give to the point where it changes my lifestyle. You see, we'll deny ourselves as long as we can continue to do what we want to do. And as long as we can go where we want to go and say what we want to say and give what we want to give. And taking up our cross, oh, we'll do that as long as it's a necklace. But I don't want one of those thorny kind. The one where they put nails in them. Now, I'd rather make a fashion statement than do that. 
Isn't it something, we say we love God so much and expect so little from ourselves. I told you it was the most difficult teaching Jesus ever gave. So how are you doing on it? Is it still about you and your kingdom of mud? Or have you finally realized there's something greater? And are you leveraging your life for something bigger than yourself? And do you feel this peace and this fulfillment and this meaning? Are you living an extraordinary life as you keep your focus on Jesus? Or have you settled somewhere along the way for a cheap version of Christianity that does not exist in the Bible? No doubt Jesus was the greatest teacher of all time. And I guess the warning in James would serve all of us well, wouldn't it? Including myself. Do not be hearers of his word. But be doers of the word of God. And I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that today. Take a look at this. How has God wired you? Today you can ask where God could be using you and your specific gifts. Then visit the Decisions tab on the Sagebrush app or head over to sagebrush.church serve and join a team where you can start making a difference in your community. We have our next baptism weekend coming up across all of our locations, and if you've been waiting for a chance to get baptized, now is the time. We would love to get you set up for this amazing next step in your journey as you share your faith publicly. If you or someone you know would like to sign up to be baptized on August 6th or 7th, visit sagebrush.church baptism today. Over this past month, we were able to help over 1,000 kids know more about God during X-Camp 2022. These kids joined us for three fun-packed days where they got to make new friends, learn about the importance of choices as they walk through the story of Daniel, and spend time doing some awesome things like making slime, jumping through inflatables, and so much more. X-Camp 2022 was a fantastic time, and we can't thank our 250-plus volunteers enough for all of their hard work and preparation. We can't wait to see what God has in store for the rest of this year in Kids Planet. We hope that you have an incredible rest of your week and we look forward to seeing you again soon.